Hey y'all, I'm your host Peyton, and today I'm going to do something a little differently. You might have noticed the title of this episode is 2A. Well, I felt this story I'm going to tell you is so important for all ages to hear, but there are some graphic details and very mature material included in this case that might not be appropriate for a younger listener. So I've decided to release another episode telling the exact same story, but as if I was relaying it to a third or fourth grade audience. The title of that episode will be To Be. This is the story of a 12-year-old boy that went missing in North Louisiana 11 years ago and how his disappearance created new legislation all over the South. This is The Crimes Picayune. Our story begins in a small town of Stonewall, Louisiana. Stonewall is only about a 20-minute drive south of Shreveport, and it sits at the northern part of DeSoto Parish and is very tiny population-wise, sitting at less than 2,000 people at the time of our story. March 29, 2010, Justin Bloxham was staying the night at his best friend Dustin's house. It was a Monday night, but the boys were out on spring break, so Justin's mom dropped him off around 6 p.m. It was a normal night. The boys played video games, they hung out, and went to Dustin's room around 9.30 or 10 to watch TV because Dustin was getting tired, but Justin stayed up and was playing on his phone. Justin was born May 29, 1997 to his parents Amy and Kevin. He was the second of four boys. Justin's story was featured on an episode of Web of Lies where his mom said he loved to skateboard and he played football for his middle school's team. His girlfriend at the time described him as just being so goofy and kind and how easy he was to talk to and they would text all the time. Justin was attached to his phone to say the least. His mom said he was averaging about 2,000 texts per month which breaks down to about 70 messages per day. The family had recently had an issue with Justin regarding social media. His dad, Kevin, found out that Justin had a MySpace account even though they had both told him that he was too young for one. So Kevin reached out to his mom, Amy. They were separated at the time but still remained in close contact for their boys. And she addressed the account with Justin. He had written something inappropriate in the About Me part of his profile, and on the Web of Lies episode, his mom shared that she explained the meaning behind the words, and she said, quote, I explained to Justin the importance of not putting things out there that you don't know what it means. Things can get misconstrued. People will look at you like a different person based on what you put out there on the World Wide Web, end quote. Dustin woke up around 9 the next morning and saw that Justin wasn't there. He looked around his house, called his name, and started getting concerned. And he was actually so concerned that he called his mom, and she told him to call Justin's mom and see if maybe she picked him up early that morning, and he just didn't tell anyone or wake anyone up. Dustin went over to Justin's house with his bag, thinking he might have forgotten it, and gave it to Justin's brother, Tyler, who was equally as confused. 
Tyler called his mom and asked if maybe she picked him up that morning and she was like, no, Justin stayed the night at Dustin's house. That's when Tyler explains that they can't find him. His mom tells him to call 911 and she'd be home as soon as possible. Everyone gathered at the last place they knew Justin to be and they waited for officers to arrive. They started brainstorming where Justin could be, thinking maybe he just snuck out to another friend's house. Dustin told officers that he knew Justin had a girlfriend named Tyler. But Tyler lived in Shreveport, and remember that's about 20 miles north, and they knew he would need a ride to get there. Because Tyler lived in a different parish, the school schedules were different, and she actually had school that week, so officers went to her middle school and they gave her a visit. Tyler and I were friends in high school, so I reached out to her to get her perspective on the events that happened that day. She said she was sitting in class when they called her over the intercom to come to the office. When she got there, she was greeted by police officers and a detective. They asked her if she knew where Justin was or if she had heard from him recently and she told them the last time they had spoken was the night before and she hadn't heard from him since. Tyler had no idea Justin was missing until the officers told her right before asking her to return to class. When she got back to class, she checked her phone and saw that Justin's mom and brother had both tried to reach her but because she was in class she hadn't seen their attempts. Back at Dustin's home, some boys that were standing around the neighborhood said they overheard a neighbor named Charlie Pate talking about having seen a taxi cab around 2 that morning. Charlie was a teacher that was up working late, and when he looked out the window, he said he could see a taxi but couldn't see who was in it, but could see that the company name was Action Taxis. At the time, the taxis were this bright Kelly green with yellow lettering down the sides, and they would have been easy to recognize even in the dark. Detectives received a printout of the messages that were going to and from Justin's phone. They saw that he and Tyler had texted until about 9.30, but noticed that a different number started messaging him around 11 and consistently continued until 3 a.m., And when I say consistently, I mean like every minute or two, they would exchange messages. According to the Web of Lies episode, the messages started out like a normal conversation. Justin didn't have the number saved, so he was trying to figure out who this number was texting him. And the conversation gradually became more sexual until it was entirely sexual. At one point, the number sent pictures to Justin that were so graphic in nature that he said, you know, I'm only 12 years old. Justin's mom, Amy, talks about how she felt when she learned what the messages to Justin's phone said. She said, quote, parts of me were angry at Justin for not seeing through some of the stuff that was sent to him, end quote. Detectives learned that Justin was talking to a 15-year-old girl named Amber, Amber persisted and pushed Justin into coming to see her so they could engage in the acts that they were texting about. Around 1 a.m., Amber said she had borrowed a car and was coming to pick him up. She texted him and said she was parked down at the end of the street, but Justin wasn't going to walk down that far, so he told her to just go home. And the detective said they could see in the messages that this happened several times where Justin would give up trying to see her, but she'd convince him and then he'd give up again. She'd convince him again, etc. 
Around 2 a.m., she said she would send a taxi to come and pick him up instead, and it finally showed up around 3 that morning. So with the neighbor's eyewitness account of an Action Taxi brand cab seen at the Rose Grant house just hours before, as well as the text messages stating Amber would send a taxi for him, an officer wondered if a strange encounter he had earlier that morning was maybe connected. He said that he had just started his shift when he noticed a car that was pulled over to the side of the road. He pulled in behind it and, according to Corporal Adam Ewing with DeSoto Parish Sheriff's Office, this was standard practice for them to do to just check and make sure that everyone is okay and no one needs assistance. As the officer looked around, he noticed a white male with a flashlight in the brush. The man stated he ran out of gas and when he got out to call for help, he dropped his keys. The officer stated he offered the man a ride, but he declined stating someone was already on their way with some gas and an extra key. Another officer recalled seeing the same taxi that morning just a couple hours later because of how weird the driver was acting. He said, quote, He had the steering wheel in his hands and was rocking back and forth violently, making the car shake. End quote. After hearing both of these strange accounts, Corporal Ewing said he wanted to know if the taxi was still there. But when the officers returned around 2 p.m., the taxi was gone, but they noted there was a pile of cigarettes on the ground. In the Web of Lies episode, the officers said it looked like somebody had just stood there and chain-smoked and chain-smoked and chain-smoked. When Sergeant Banta looked up from the pile of cigarettes, he noticed that there had been a path made in the brush where it was obvious it had been walked over. He followed the path deeper into the woods and saw what he thought was trash, but came to realize it was actually blue jeans. Justin's blue jeans. Less than 12 hours after Justin sent his last text messages, officers found him face down in a shallow puddle of water, dead. Detectives knew whoever was driving that cab had something to do with Justin's death. They called Action Taxi to figure out who was driving in the area that morning. Just that morning, the morning of Justin's disappearance, an employee of Action Taxi, Brian Douglas Horn, had returned their cab, quit, and walked away on foot from the business. Horn was born in 1975, close to the area in the city of Mansfield, Louisiana. In a book by R.J. Parker and J.J. Slate, Horn didn't have the most stable childhood and experienced behavior problems like throwing paper airplanes from his window that he had lit on fire, as well as his parents being arrested for selling drugs out of their home. Horn's criminal record dates back to 1994 when he was 19 years old. Since then, he had 14 arrests, including two sex-related offenses, and he had been registered as a sex offender. Detectives went to Brian Horn's home, where his wife Amanda answered the door. She said she hadn't seen him in a while because they were in the process of separating. That afternoon, a press statement was released stating Horn was a person of interest. His brother brought him into the station where he voluntarily turned himself in. They questioned him about his circumstances the previous night and asked him why he was in the woods. He reiterated what he told the officer that pulled in behind him, that he had ran out of gas and when he went to call for help, he lost his keys. 
Because Brian's brother Kevin had driven him to the station, investigators wanted to search his car too. Kevin was super upfront and open with police and helped them by indicating what belonged to him and what his brother Brian had brought from his taxi when he picked him up. As officers dug through Brian's belongings, they found a SIM card. A SIM card, for those who don't know, is like a chip that goes into your phone that stores information. And at this time, they were about the size of a fingernail, and they were a lot easier to remove back then. I remember being able to just pop mine out and put it into another phone, and it would usually just keep my contacts and, I believe, my text messages. Back at Brian's home, officers looked through his wife Amanda's computer. They found that she had... Lots of searches on sites like Craigslist for ads looking for sexual partners. They also found a folder named Mandybug143 that included child abuse and people being smothered, but the computer belonged to his wife, so there wasn't a way for them to get Brian for possession. Officers knew Brian Horn had something to do with Justin's murder, but they didn't have anything to tie him directly. It was all circumstantial at this point. Until during their search of the wood where Justin's body was found, underneath a shoe belonging to Justin was the key to Brian Horn's taxi. When officers confronted him with this information, Horn requested a lawyer. Now that they had Brian, they wanted to search for Amber because Amber had been the last person to talk to Justin. But officers unknowingly already had her. When they searched the SIM card, Brian moved to his brother Kevin's vehicle from his taxi cab. The numbers were a match. Brian Horn was Amber. Less than 36 hours after Justin was murdered, Brian Horn was arrested on March 31st, 2010 for his murder. Brian Horn was indicted by a grand jury on April 12, 2010. He was initially charged with second-degree murder. Second-degree murder in Louisiana, defined by the Johnson Law Firm, is, quote, the killing of another person when the offender intends to kill the victim or an offender who kills someone without specific intent while he commits a felony or while he's attempting to commit a felony, end quote. In addition to the text messages, the SIM card, and the key found at the scene, fingerprints were lifted from the outside of the taxi cab and were found to belong to Justin. And because Horn kidnapped Justin, they can now charge him with first-degree murder because that is defined, again by the Johnson Law Firm, as, quote, the killing of another person with intent while committing specified felonies, end quote. And this small difference between the two charges will come up again later. Horn was arraigned on January 3rd, 2012 for first-degree murder and kidnapping. I want to add here that he has pled not guilty any and every chance he got. His trial began March 28, 2014. In a DeSoto Parish newspaper called the Enterprise, they write, quote, Detectives testified Justin was taken to the location off Highway 171 and left in a shallow pool of water with scratches and bruises to his back, a cut on his lip, and a gash under his eye, end quote. Justin's cause of death was asphyxiation. The medical examiner, Dr. James Trailer, explained, quote, 
If a person was being choked forcibly, they would lose consciousness after about 15 seconds. But if you release them, they will regain consciousness. In order to kill them, you need to hold them in a tight hold like that for up to 90 seconds. After 90 seconds, brain activity ceased. Anything after 30 seconds was not accidental. Just a second ago, I explained the difference between first-degree murder and second-degree murder is the intent to kill. Dr. Trailer is arguing that Justin more than likely lost consciousness around 15 seconds, stopping him from fighting back. So Horn continued to choke Justin for another minute after he stopped moving. Horn had 60 more chances to stop, but he didn't. And to me, that proves his intent. Dr. Trailer also testified that, quote, Justin died from being smothered and opined that the perpetrator smothered Justin while on Justin's back, end quote. He identified petechiae, which are like red or brown purple spots, in Justin's eye and on his face and forehead, as well as, quote, an abraded contusion on the inside of Justin's mouth consistent with the perpetrator compressing his lips and mouth against his braces, end quote. During trial, Brian Horn's brother-in-law, Ronald Roberts, also took the stand to talk about an event that happened six months before Justin's murder. According to Roberts, Horn stated, quote, You get away with more driving around in a taxi cab. You could probably drive around all day with somebody kidnapped and nobody would know, end quote. Brian Horn had been the one using his then-wife's computer to pose as her searching for sex with strangers and he was the one downloading the images of children. He got Justin's number from a contact list he downloaded from a friend of his stepdaughter's phones. It's not made clear in any of my research but I don't think the friend of the stepdaughter knew that he had her contact list but Horn was aware that Justin was only 12. The jury found Brian Horn guilty of first-degree murder and took them less than an hour to sentence him to death. Like I said earlier, Horn has never admitted guilt to killing Justin and ultimately never stated what actually happened that night, but authorities believe that the cab ran out of gas in the spot Horn was spotted by several officers later that day, and Justin sent Amber a text saying the cab died. They think Horn's phone went off and Justin put two and two together and ran into the woods where Horn choked him to death. Justin has several memorials in his honor all over that small town. He has a garden dedicated to him at the middle school he was attending at the time of his death. There is also a big white sign that sits in the very spot Justin ran into the woods that night. It says, Justin M. Bloxham, May 29th, 1997 to March 30th, 2010. Now in God's hands, forever in our hearts. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15. Justin's mother never stopped fighting for him. In May of 2010, Amy Bloxham filed a wrongful death suit against the owner of the cab company that hired Brian Horn. The owner knew Horn was a registered sex offender and hired him anyway. Within 10 days of hiring Horn, Justin was dead. Justin's mom didn't stop there, though. 
according to the Justice for Justin Bloxham Facebook page. Now in Louisiana, Texas, and Oklahoma, quote, Justin's law will prohibit a person registered as a sex offender who committed a sexually violent offense on a child under the age of 13 from employment in certain fields such as a taxicab or limousine driver. Earlier, I briefly mentioned Brian Horn's criminal record in that he had been arrested 14 times from 1994 until 2010. I don't have access to all of the arrests, but here's a breakdown of what I do have access to. In 1994, he was arrested for the unauthorized use of an access card and forgery. He was given a three-year suspended sentence and placed on parole until 1997. In 1995, he was arrested for indecent behavior with a juvenile, as well as resisting arrest, but the resisting arrest charges were dismissed, and he pled no contest to the charges of indecent behavior. He was found in a vehicle with a girl that was 13, and he got three years in prison. In 1997, he was arrested for contributing to the delinquency of juveniles, and that was dismissed. Also in 1997, he was arrested for simple burglary, and that's listed as no disposition, so I'm not sure of the final outcome of that arrest. In 1998, he was arrested for the rape of a 14-year-old girl, possession of marijuana with intent to distribute, illegal possession of stolen things, and escape. So he attempted to flee from the scene, and he was sentenced to four years. In 2002, he was arrested again for indecent behavior with a juvenile, and in 2003, he pled guilty to the sexual assault charges from 1998, and he was released from prison in 2007. In September of 2018, the Louisiana Supreme Court overturned Horn's conviction, stating his lawyers infringed upon his Sixth Amendment right to effective counsel. This part gets a little messy, but I'll try to explain the best I can. Horn didn't want to admit to killing Justin during trial, but his defense didn't listen to him and said, quote, I'm not asking you to let him walk the streets. I'm not asking you to find him not guilty, end quote. And he basically told the jury that the state had failed to prove that there was intent, meaning he couldn't be found guilty of first-degree murder, and he thought manslaughter was a better fit. He cited a court case that happened in 2008, McCoy versus Louisiana, where the same exact thing happened to Robert McCoy and his counsel. That one went all the way to the Supreme Court where they ruled they would reverse the ruling stating that the mental state wasn't proven in McCoy's case. And ultimately, the court granted Brian Horn a retrial. In June of 2019, prosecutors filed another indictment against Horn, but with a slight change to the wording. An article by KTBS3 writes that it still includes the charge of first-degree murder, but this time will be while attempting to carry out a second-degree kidnapping instead of aggravated kidnapping. As far as I could see, his new trial is set for this March, March of 2021. Justin would be turning 24 years old this year. His loved ones keep his legacy alive by posting pictures in the Justice for Justin Bloxham Facebook page. They often ask members of the group to share Justin's story with any and everyone because it just might save a child's life. Hallelujah.